A generous and elevated mind is distinguished by nothing more certainly than an eminent degree of curiosity. A remark attributed to Samuel Johnson in a dedication to Geronimo Lobo's Voyage to Abyssinia, 1775. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. Collect for the second Sunday in Advent the Book of Common Prayer. 1. The south-central Indian city of Bengaluru, until lately Bangalore, has long cherished its reputation as the shiny and prosperous future of the Republic. Its city fathers like to think of it as a place of much history but few grudges, a community seldom witnessing the kinds of episodes of communal strife that have plagued the country's larger centres like Bombay, Madras and Calcutta. Its reputation for harmony and stability have enticed legions of outsiders to come and bask in its pleasantness. Most notable, among the newcomers, are computer software and hardware companies which long ago set down their headquarters there and gave the city an outward air of gleaming modernity. Being high up on the Deccan Plateau, the place is cooler and cleaner and greener than many other Indian cities, and its topography and location have protected it from the more ferocious travails of the monsoon. However, beyond the palaces of high technology and the expensive consumerism that is its handmaid, there is a population in Bengaluru of very much more modest means. All told, the city and its immediate surrounds are home to some 11 million people, but fully 2 million of these live well below India's very low poverty line, and they inhabit, by the admission of the local government, no fewer than 800 officially designated slums, 800 officially designated places of hunger, filth, deprivation and crime. Tens of thousands of the young children who live in these pullulating aggregations of wretchedness have enjoyed no education, nor ever will. At least, they never imagined that they would until one morning in the early autumn of 2003, when a middle-aged Bengali woman named Shukla Bose set up a folding chair and a small trestle table beside a black and fetid body of water, a nulla, in one of the very worst of the Bangalore bastis. Here she let it be known, her words passed along to neighbours and then spreading through the shanties like a prairie fire, that any child there who might wish to gain some knowledge by going to school could now do so with immediate effect and always and forever, for free. The moment marked a profound change in the lives of many, not the least of them being Shukla Bose herself. Back in the 1970s, for a very different reason, a small group of us knew her rather well. We were all foreign correspondents who, from our various bases around the region, had been sent in late 1971 to what was then still Calcutta to cover the vicious war between Pakistan and India. The brief wintertime engagement eventually resulted, after the whopping defeat of Pakistan's army, in the creation of the independent Bengali state of Bangladesh. There were maybe ten of us. I was there for the Guardian, briefly uprooted from my base in Belfast, and we'd spend our days out at the front watching the battles, and then return to Calcutta's Grand Hotel on Charingi each evening to send out our dispatches, and have dinner and prepare for the following day's drama. Shukla, then Shukla Chakravati, had been educated up in the hills of Darjeeling, had recently graduated from the University of Calcutta, and was now a guest relations assistant at the hotel. She became something of a den mother to us rather bewildered group of outsiders, 
helping us with all manner of the minor problems that anyone travelling in India half a century ago would inevitably encounter. An example of this kind of thing were the communications problems. They particularly bedeviled us. Correspondents invariably need to make telephone calls, but the best domestic connections in 1970s India, the so-called lightning call, billed at eight times the normal rate, would still take half an hour to be put through. International telex connections sometimes took hours. Once, while waiting for a connection, my father in London called from his office and evidently, using a single finger, typed a long congratulatory screed to me while ten weary correspondents read every word, especially my mother's entreaty, when in India, make sure to keep off the salads. Amused humiliation followed me for years. We all fell for Shukla, for her intelligence, her tolerance, her patience and kindness, and when we left for other trouble spots, each of us promised to come back to Bengal to see her and thank her for making our lives so much easier. So when I found myself based in India a few years later, I made contact with Shukla once again. By now she had married, was Mrs Shukla Bose, and had a small daughter. Over the coming years we remained friends as she and her family moved first to Ahmedabad in western India and then to where she would make a more permanent home, in the pleasant suburbs of Bangalore. Her daughter eventually earned a place at Cambridge University. Shukla worked her way up the corporate ladder and by the end of the century had become a successful and much lauded executive in an American hotel company, an achievement that for a woman was something of a rarity in India, even so recently. It was then, however, that Shukla Bose had her epiphany. With her daughter now having left the nest for good, with her own domestic and economic situation stable and reasonably comfortable, she'd embark on a mission to offer to as many indigent Indian children of whom there were thousands living in the slums almost on her doorstep, access to the knowledge that she had enjoyed for all of her life, access denied to them because they were poor and forgotten. Knowledge was the key to everything, she decided, so she would leave her formal employment forthwith, would abandon the security of her salary, would embark on a long-cherished plan to help in some small way to alleviate the crisis that she felt was crippling her country. The poor and their scores of millions of children had no access to good education. Generations would lose any chance for improvement simply because they had no chance of winning access to knowledge. Though her efforts might make only an infinitesimal contribution, it was surely right to try. Her husband and her daughter agreed. She would embark on the dissemination of knowledge here in Bangalore by setting up a school and inviting any child who so desired to come and be taught. Hence the trestle table and the folding chair beside the nullah. Around her, on all sides, the low and level slums stretched far away, rows upon rows of shanties of tin and tar paper, dogs slinking through the laneways, an occasional enormous cow standing immobile and chewing while crowds surged around her. There were few men. Most had abandoned their families and left the women to work and the children to forage and scrounge. Coils of smoke rose from a hundred cooking fires, the women squatting before them, keeping the coals alive and making sure the pots didn't spill their precious contents. And everywhere, the slum, the Bastille, with its thousand mingled smells, its constant din of shouting and barking and crying and snatches of tinnily discordant music, its wild confusion of colour, its abiding and intractable appearance of poverty. Shukla's table 
proved a welcome distraction. Children would crowd around, eager to know what she was up to. School, she would reply, explaining in English, of which a surprising number of children seemed to have a basic understanding. She'd give them three meals a day, nice uniforms in blue and yellow, and as much education as each could manage and for no payment. The excited small boys and girls, understanding at least the words about food and nice new clothes, would dash back to their homes and then return, tugging along bewildered and suspicious mothers, most of them wearily sceptical of an offer the like of which they had never heard before. Shukla would try to explain, usually speaking in halting Canada or Malayalam, her own mother tongue being Bengali. Most often, she'd fail to convince, the mother and child hurrying back into the dingy clamour, the youngster squalling, the pair vanishing into the smoke. But not always. By the evening of her first day, Shukla had signed up eleven children. She gave them the address. She had rented a Basati, a small shack on the flat roof of a neighbour's house, and had engaged two friends, both teachers, who had agreed to volunteer their services. She told each child, five boys and six girls, all of them around six years old, to be there in time for breakfast. The school opened with eleven pupils, three teachers, and a part-time cook at nine o'clock the next morning. That was the early autumn of 2003. Visitors came and were immediately impressed by the evident passion for learning shown by the students who seemed universally ecstatic, simply to be taught. Volunteers stopped by, a friend from Paris, another from Glasgow, and many of them stayed to help, so fascinated were they by the children and their so evident enthusiasm, their hunger, the word most often used for learning. The foreigners helped with the teaching, but also helped clean the classrooms and to work in the rudimentary kitchen. Then, a handful of the companies with headquarters nearby heard of the little school, offered money, gave computers, paid for teachers. The project started to grow, slowly at first, and then, by the end of the first decade, to flourish. By 2021, there were four schools and even a junior college, with a hitherto unimaginable 1,600 students, ranging in age from 5 to 18. Slum children, who previously had no measurable chance for even a halfway decent life, were now earning scholarships to universities, particularly in America, many of the graduates going off to Duke University in North Carolina, and they were joining the professions. They had become young lawyers, internists, research scientists, hotel managers. Others were working in libraries and at reception desks, or as car mechanics and bakers were opening businesses, becoming teachers themselves. An entire new galaxy of Bangalore slum schools had been created in less than a dozen years, and within it, and then beyond it, in its ever-widening gyre, abundant proof of Lawrence Stern's prediction from two centuries before that the more knowledge you instill, the more is demanded. The desire of knowledge, he had written, like the thirst of riches, increases ever with the acquisition of it. No one, least of all Shukla Bose herself, had ever imagined the level of success. Each of the schools positively hums with a happy energy. You hear the noise well before you walk through the gate into the sandy yard. Each morning, still cool in what out in the countryside they call the cow dust hour, is when the cattle are led from their barns out into the fields, stirring up dust in the lanes. There are the scrums of children playing or lining up waiting to go to class, all of them neat in their faded blue and yellow uniforms, all of them enjoying a life now transformed. Their teachers, most of them smiling young women in brightly coloured saris, glide through the schoolyard making sure their charges are there, are behaving, are in good health, in good spirits, 
or at least outwardly happy. There's a good deal of hugging. Children running in from outside hug their friends. The teachers hug any child on his or her own. A bell clangs. The teachers clap their hands. The children still their chattering and line up, answering to their names as the women call out from their clipboards. Then the children file towards the stairwells, patting farewell to the schoolyard dog. Each school has a street dog, given the name of a Shakespearean character, Caliban or Macbeth or Mercurio, to be looked after and cared for by the pupils. The littlest children settle themselves behind their tiny desks, close their eyes, and in two minutes of silent meditation prepare themselves for the day ahead. Their teacher asks them to open their eyes and then asks what they were learning yesterday, and a girl from the front row puts up her hand, then stands and says excitedly, The names of vegetables. So we were, replies the teacher, and asks each child to stand and say out loud the name, in English, of a vegetable. So they start, little girl first, yelling through the biggest and most triumphant grin, Carrot! she cries. Another girl behind her stands up, Lettuce! Then a boy, shy for a moment, looking around him a little scared, Broccoli! From behind, Peas, Cabbage, Cauliflower! The words tumble out, each child eager to identify a type that hasn't been named before, so things get ever more complicated and the vegetables ever more obscure as the minutes tick on. Okra, capsicum, rutabaga, pepper, courgette, asparagus. I catch myself here. These are just four-year-olds, small children still living in utter poverty, but they know asparagus, the English word it is satavari in Canada, the native tongue of the small boy who shouts it out, Sativarichetti in Malayalam, his absent father's language. And how to spell it? Yes, the boy stumbles and everyone giggles good-naturedly while the teacher coaxes the right spelling out of him. They know what it is and how it looks, first white and then green, and how it tastes and how it leaves a smell, rather a nice smell, on those who eat a lot of it, and if it's good for you or not, and if you eat too much. And of all this knowledge, they knew not one whit a day before, but this young teacher, in her scarlet and green sari, managed to teach them, and then dismisses the challenge of her doing so by saying that the children are so hungry for the knowledge of these things. She tells me that later today, after I have left, they'll be learning the names of some stars and planets and the moon and the sun, and will stay until eight o'clock. And she'll ask them to peer up through the Bangalore haze, the cow dust hour of evening, to see if they can spot some of the bigger stars and the better-known constellations.' 